you know, when you have leaders, sometimes they're so far removed from the classroom, they kind of don't connect and they make decisions that don't make sense to the learning environment. So I think the special part about this position was I was still very in touch with the students and teaching. So I got to make leadership decisions from that lens, from that perspective um, that were best for students and how they learn. And also because I still felt the pain of being a teacher, I knew what the teachers on my team were going through. So I could also make decisions for them that were realistic and helpful. Everybody knows what a good school looks like. One great teacher in each classroom, dynamic principal, high test scores, order everywhere, schedule set, curriculum specified, teachers teaching, students learning. But what if this framing, though not quite wrong, misses the mark? Maybe a good school is a place where the boundaries separating classroom spaces are permeable and teachers share responsibility for all students' well-being and achievement where everything in the school is negotiable except the well-being and development of the teachers and students in it, where students know they are cared for and respond by learning to care in return. Maybe a good school is a space where all are growing and equity is a constant concern, where each one has a voice and everybody has responsibility, where teachers are leaders and leaders are always learning. I'm Barb Stengel, your host for this podcast. Join us for Chasing Bailey as we try to figure this out. In the second episode of Chasing Bailey, you heard about the importance of teaming as the structural piece that enabled a productive and enriching environment for teaching and learning at Bailey Middle School. We heard about a shared and sharp focus on the scholars, the way the team structure took care of the teachers, the extraordinary decision-making power in the hands of teacher teams, and the expansive sense of inclusion that extended to educators no matter what their role and to students no matter what their strengths and needs. The net effect of this ethos was a school where teachers and students teamed with each other for learning and support of all kinds. But teaming couldn't work without leadership. And at Bailey, that leadership resided, at least officially, in teacher leaders. So I talked with four of the Bailey teacher leaders, folks who filled different kinds of positions. Kelly Aldrich Boyd, who was the mathematics content lead in seventh and eighth grade. Lakeisha Harding, who was both a special education lead and a global literacy team lead, and whom you've met before. Whitney Bradley Weathers, who was a global literacy teacher before becoming a team lead and later school-wide literacy coach. And Lindsay Nelson, who served in a hybrid position bridging Vanderbilt and Bailey, and then as dean of academics for one year. We spoke over 90 minutes about their roles, about how they were developed as leaders, and about the ways they understood themselves as successful leaders. That's what I share with you in this episode. But the entire 90 minutes was so rich that I want to share all of their comments about race, about what we need to do post-pandemic. And as a result, I will post the entire interview on our website at chasingbaileypod.com. But for now, let's turn our attention to teacher leaders. The voice you heard at the start was Kelly Aldridge Boyd, putting her finger on the value of locating leadership at the heart of teaching and learning. You'll hear Kelly here describing the responsibility she took on, followed by each of the other leaders with whom I spoke. I guess the district title was multi-classroom leader, but Dr. Sawyer changed this to instructional leaders. And My role was 40% of the time I was working with students. So I would either be co-teaching or pulling small groups. 
and I work with the seventh and eighth grade math teachers. And then the other 60% of the time, I would be either doing some kind of coaching, planning, um, data analysis over assessments, creating assessments, things like that. And so uh, coaching all of the teachers who taught math, and that included residents mm-hmm. and paras and special ed folks. Yes. So you, you roughly responsibility for all those people. And were you compensated mm-hmm. for that? Yeah, we were paid a stipend for the position. Okay. And did you mm-hmm. have a longer contract? Because some people had like 11 month contracts, I thought. Yes. Yeah, and we worked 11 months. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. All right, so Keisha, you had a couple different sort of opportunities. What Can you tell us about that? Sure. So my first kind of larger leadership role in the school was the um, instructional coach for special education. Um, and even when I transitioned the following year into being the multi-classroom leader for global literacy, I feel for the seventh and eighth grade for both um, for both roles, I feel like my mission was the same to make sure that like inclusion was happening as efficiently, accurately, and well prepared as far as the adults as possible. Um, So with the instructional coach for the special education um, role, I mostly focused on training up the special education teachers in things like co-teaching, co-planning, advocacy, things like that. In my role as the global literacy instructional coach, though, I focus those things on the general ed teachers, our resident teachers, but also making sure there was time based on my experience as a special education teacher and leader for all groups to be together in the process. But my goal was the same. Um, If a lot of our kids, what what was it, 23 to 25% special education students within our building, so my goal was that no matter what setting those students were in, they got what they needed, um, which a traditional academic coach may or may not do. Um, but I felt like I had a special lens that made the global literacy position specifically um, more successful because of that lens, if that makes sense. <laughs> okay, good. Whitney. Yeah, so I started as just a seventh grade teacher for global literacy um, at Bailey. And then I transitioned into the seventh and eighth grade global literacy um, person. And then it was just eighth grade. Um, So when Keisha was seventh and eighth, I moved just to eighth grade um, global literacy uh, multi-classroom leader. I think that's it. And then before I left Bailey, I was the instructional coach for literacy. So there were four different things I did while I was there. Were you also the eighth grade team leader? Was there a team? It was something funky. We didn't, I don't know if we like officially had those titles. They definitely, I don't remember them being stipended. They were stipended before I got the position. And then I got the position. I think they were like, well, you're already a leader. So we're not going to double lead pay you. Um, But at some point, yes. Um, I think I became the unofficial like eighth grade leader um, just because we our team had its own wing of the school and so um, admin wasn't really down on our on our end as much so we sort of kind of had to like figure stuff out (laughs) but we did it we did it yes well, I mean, one of the things I realized, and this got cut out of the last episode, but I, I can't draw an org chart for Bailey. For yeah. any one year, I can't draw a chart that shows like <laughs> who was on what team, because there were these cross-cutting kinds of things. Lindsay, yeah. you want to pick up on that because you were in both fifth and sixth grade and then seventh and eighth grade. And both, actually. Yes. And I, I mean, I was somewhat multi-classroom leader, somewhat RTI. Remember, this was like the pilot year for middle schools in RTI. So that mm-hmm. was, I still draw upon that experience. It was, there was no, there's no guide. There was no playbook. Like you just, we were making it and Kathy was kind of guiding me and what to do with that. Um, so that was very innovative. And, it, and like reflecting on this, that was one of the reasons I said yes to coming to Bailey because 
Christian and Gonski said, we want you to do this really creative, innovative thing. Um, are you up for it? Um, so that was year one for me. And so I literally spent half of my week on Peabody's campus and half of my week on Bailey's campus. Um, and then year two, I moved into more of a building wide leadership role. I think I honestly don't remember what Christian named it because it had like a million words. Um, something along the lines of like a dean of academics or instructional leader of something, something, you know, how he is with words. Um, so that year was more building wide curriculum assessment decisions specifically for literacy. Um, I remember working really closely with all the other MCLs. Um, like we were making more of these really data-driven, student-driven decisions um, that went just beyond per grade level. Like I remember thinking of it in a more holistic way. In your position as a leader, how much of your time were you actually with students in classrooms? And how much of your time were you doing, say, data analysis or you know, curriculum development or coaching of people? Can you guesstimate or was it all different every year? Yeah, I can take it. Um, <laughs> So what's interesting is that the literacy model wasn't the same as the math model. And Keisha and I actually, like, I remember us regularly going to our building leaders going, yo, this model does not work because math didn't have assigned classes, but literacy did. So we, I was teaching while also coaching, while also going into other classrooms to observe or support. And then Keisha would like rotate into my class and I would like run over to another class where she would run into a class. And then I might like go up to her class while she was still trying to like manage IEPs and things like that. So the model wasn't perfect, at least especially for me from the literacy side, because I didn't have a dedicated time of day that was a different schedule than the teacher and teachers that I coached. Mm -hmm. So it created this very real tension between like how much attention I can pay to my students, how much attention my students deserve and like how much like, you know, personal planning, forget about it. That was like after school, that was at home. That was all of that because I still needed to create a pretty robust curriculum for my students and it didn't exist, right? To Lindsay's point, we were building the plane as we were flying it and I did not have a degree in aeronautics I was just trying to like global literacy didn't exist in any other school other than Bailey and so it was it was it was rough my time on task I wouldn't say that I could parse it out because I was doing everything all the time I think one of the powers that you folks brought was the fact that you were never not with students. Now it was different. Kelly, you can speak to that because you were with students a lot, but you didn't have primary responsibility for a specific group of students, right? No, I think I was the only one, to be honest. Um, even Karen taught math full-time. So I think I was the only MCL that did not have an assigned like class, even though I did teach a lot. I still didn't have like an assigned class. So I think I was the only one that could actually like have some time where I could just sit and plan or something like that by myself without kids or having to figure it out. Yeah, I'm not sure about Sarah Prowl. I think she may have been in the same. Yeah, Sarah too. But I Prowl was five through eight. But Prowl was mm -hmm. five through five eight. Through eight. Okay. So the, mm -hmm. the, like the, the nuance there, right, is that she didn't have any classes, but she was planning for fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. And at some point, I think we had a science teacher quit. <laughs> so she ended up going yes. in there as yes. well. <laughs> yes, that's right. Okay, Keisha. So I feel like even, even, I feel like my responsibilities as a special education coach um, was actually a little bit easier, even though the, there was more of a workload for several reasons, IEPs and IEP meetings. And two, I was over the entire school at that point. So of course, I don't have the same planning period as a sixth grade team or the fifth grade team. So 
So whatever PLCs we created or whatever time we created after school to meet like as a whole department in terms of special education was good. I taught all the time, but I'm gonna tell you, if I wasn't with Whitney that year, I don't think that it would have been as fluid because she is an expert in literacy. I My background is not in literacy. So often I was able to take um, be in the meetings and participate in the planning, but also take her lessons, the worksheets and stuff, take what she created ultimately and kind of modify it for my students. So some of those tasks were lessened, which allowed me more time for IEPs and coaching and things. But if you're not on a team where you know everybody's strengths and, and you're like, you're okay to kind of put that pride aside and be like, look, she already has that worksheet. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel for these kids, especially if you want them included in her small groups, in her space. There's mm-hmm. things that you have to mirror um, in your space in a um, maybe a pullout setting because the goal is to get them into the inclusion class, right? So in that sense, that year, and maybe easier is it not the word? Um, Because it wasn't less of a workload, it was just there was such a strong team um, where we knew each other's strengths and weaknesses and had a level of trust that we could do things like, hey, Keisha, come come do this small group so that I can go coach. Hey, Keisha, here's the worksheets for this week. We're going to do a pullout, you know, go do X, Y, and Z. And it did change all the time, but that's what data-driven and student-centered instruction is. Like, every week is going to be different. Now, as a, as a global literacy multi-classroom leader, I really feel like, and I think I did this to myself, I think that my role largely became still management of behavior. I still do. I distinctly remember it was like a week or two before Christmas and everybody on my team, I think I was, was I seventh grade this year? Guys, I can't remember. No, it was seventh and eighth. But there was one grade level that year And it was like all the teachers and residents were stressed out. They were like not about to make it to Christmas. And I said, you know what? I'm not all for like um, in-school suspension without any type of remediation. However, we do have about 20 students that are making it very difficult to make it to Christmas right now. And I could tell they just needed the relief. So I just told Dr. Jasper, hey, I'm going to do this kind of restoration thing for the next two weeks. All of these students and all my kids, the ones that were not in restoration those two weeks, I made it so that they have other spaces to go. They knew the expectation, don't go in there cutting up and bothering other people's spaces, do what you're supposed to do. Clearly the work is similar anyways because um, of the model that we had. So it's not like they were going in to do something new those two weeks, just doing it in a different space. Lindsay, you, I mean, you had this, as you said, it was sort of an all-school leadership role, but um, I recall seeing you a good bit in the classroom, and I, uh, I mean, what did you do? <laughs> um, so the seventh grade year, I took on teacher record for one section, and that was, I pretty much stepped into a seemingly dysfunctional team at one time. Um, Keisha, I remember you being a big part of that too. Like you were speaking to coming into multiple spaces. Um, and there, there were a lot of, I don't know if it was personality conflict or, you know, I love what you keep bringing up of this idea of knowing strengths and weaknesses. And I don't feel like that team had that. There wasn't this acknowledgement of, Hey, I've got this and you've got this. However, we had a lot of very, very dedicated people on that team, like Keenan and Julia, um, had some, I mean, I'm just thinking of the global literacy team itself. So I stepped in and just supported in whatever way needed. Um, we ended up dividing classes and students. And my thought was, I can help with this and I can be part of the solution instead of stand back, you know, the ivory tower mentality of and, and watch everything not go well. I just inserted myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was part of it. I think you know, part of my day was spent in stepping in and out of classrooms, co-teaching, co-planning, trying to relieve some of the load of our 
um, I guess seventh grade also, but fifth and sixth grade, I was somewhat supporting as well. Um, so, I mean, I, I remember it being like 50-50. Again, I had a unique role. Um, about 50% of my week was in classrooms with kids directly. 50% was with teachers or, um, you know, working closely with Christian and Julie at the time. So were these kinds of leadership roles good for you at that moment in your career? I mean, all of you at that point had a few years of experience, at least some of you more than others. Um, were, was that a good place for you? Yeah, it was, it was kind of my first time being a leader in that kind of way outside of being just like a team leader. Um, so it was a great experience, uh, for me to just experience that and to kind of like, you know, when you have leaders, sometimes they're so far removed from the classroom, they kind of don't connect and they make decisions that don't make sense to the learning environment. So I think the special part about this position was I was still very in touch with the students and teaching. So I got to make leadership decisions from that lens, from that perspective um, that were best for students and how they learn. And also because I still felt the pain of being a teacher, I knew what the teachers on my team were going through. So I could also make decisions for them that were realistic. So what have they told us about being a teacher leader at Bailey? All were in classrooms more than half of the time, sharing joys and pains with all team members and students. All were responsible for analyzing data, for coaching colleagues in various ways, for facilitating team meetings about kids and curriculum. But there were differences. Some teachers had responsibility for content or services across grade levels, some were linked to grade level teams. Some had school-wide responsibilities. You already heard me say it's pretty much impossible to draw a single org chart. How did these cross-cutting patterns of leadership and responsibility pay off for students and colleagues? I asked each of the teacher leaders to pick an instance of success, even triumph, an instance that would reveal something important and useful about their work as leaders. Listen to their collection of stories, and you'll get a fuller picture of what it was like to lead at Bailey. Keisha Harding speaks first. When Quan Lando got out of special education, he begged for that for like a year. I knew that he was no on no different academic level than even some of the middle tier students in Gen Ed. He was a very social boy, but he in it. It was be having that label on him on paper and just on him being separated from his peers. It was not a good move socially and emotionally. And it's really hard to release people from special education programs without a lot of solid evidence over time. So the fact that we were able to do that with for him, and I say we because it wasn't just me. Bradley was on the team that year. Everybody and Madison, I believe Madison Noel was on the team that year. So yeah, it just was very a very powerful moment um, to see his joy, to know that he didn't continue in his academic career and backslide, um, things like that. It, that was probably one of the most powerful. And that experience. really probably includes all of these roles, the, the, mm -hmm. the coaching of people, the anal analysis of data, the all interaction <laughs> with individual kids. Yeah. Yes. It was okay. a whole plan with everyone, including him and his parent, um, which I think it was his mom mostly we were communicating with at the time, and the gen ed teachers and myself and the resident advisors, everyone was part of the plan. And we just moved in motion, collected the data we needed, and was like, hey, you got it, bud. Like, <laughs> go, be free, be not free, do, do you, like, you're good. <laughs> Kelly, do you have a moment? So I can't remember if it was my first year or second year. I pulled a small group of students that I taught the whole year. So this wasn't like a rotating group. 
Um, I, I taught them the whole year, six period, every day. I taught this group of kids. And I think I only had like six to eight students, but half were ex exceptional ed students. Now, most of those have had more emotional problems than like learning. So it was kind of a learning experience for me to be able to manage their emotions, especially because all of them were coming from a science class from a first year teacher. And when they came to me, they were all riled up. So I remember like the first half of class was just me kind of managing their emotions. And then we got into the learning and all that. And so I remember that year with TCAP, all of those kids were either proficient or advanced. And two of my advanced students were exceptional ed students. Mm -hmm. And I never, I was like, I mean, I know I can teach, but what? <laughs> the impact there by, by pulling the kids who in particular had the emotional issues kind mm -hmm. of playing out, you are mm -hmm. providing relief for mm -hmm. somebody who's, you know, because who has <laughs> 25 <sure. laughs> and, you know, has those two or three kids with them. Uh, as well as mm -hmm. being a model of, oh my God, these kids can achieve significantly if we do the right things for them. Right. Uh, Lindsay, a moment, a story? Yeah, um, I think the moment that stands out to me was in that seventh grade global literacy classroom. And Julia and I came up with this plan of splitting our group 50-50 in one space um, and it was very data specific and that was fluid and flexible. Um, but we had this almost mirror image situation where I was working with a group and teaching and um, leading discussion. And she was doing the exact same thing facing me on the other side of the room. I described this to people and they're like, but how and why? Somehow it worked in that again, she is brand new in learning how to be a teacher. And I was brand new in learning how to be a leader. And so only thing I knew to do was let me just show you what can I show you what this looks like. And so our kids would be split, I would be about one or two steps ahead of her, and she would listen to me, and then fuel that in her own way, teach her group. And then we would swap groups. And then we would do uh, whatever the other part of the class. Um, but I remember her feeling empowered in the planning and the ownership in the teaching and saying, oh, that worked. And this felt good and right. And mm -hmm. I, that created this momentum. And then it became Julia took the lead, right? Just this mm -hmm. progression of ownership where she and there were many, many, many days when she had the knowledge and expertise that I did not, especially in social studies world. She's brilliant. Um, and she's like, oh, I know what to do here. And I was great. That's fantastic. And so there was this, this, that gradual release of responsibility and seeing that firsthand um, as a leader, that meant something to me and it meant something to her. And, you know, you know I, I would like to think, and I hope she took that into her next career choice in, in education. Okay. Great. Whitney? Um, I knew I made a difference when no one could tell, none of our students knew who their actual teacher was. Like that was the moment when I was like, damn right. Um, because we very strategically on the global literacy team, it was me, Keisha, a teacher named Charles Wigley. And then we had Anne-Marie Dvorak that year. And the four of us sat down and we said, look, we gotta split these groups. We gotta figure it out. And we did, we took a 150 minute chunk of time and we broke it into 50 minute rotations, which was just about the attention span that they had. And the kids rotated to three, to between three and four different teachers every single day. And it gave us the opportunity to, to hone in on our craft because we each taught the same lesson three times. It gave the kids the opportunity to move. It gave, you know, teachers who maybe were not as confident the ability to have their own class, but we were never far away. So if something happened, we could go support the other person. And it, I remember someone saying like, well, who's your teacher right now? And then be like, all of them, what do you mean? And that was probably the best ever because Keisha was this proponent of stop calling me just a special education teacher. I am an educator 
who can help you all differentiate, who can help you all modify. But if you continue to look at me this way, you'll continue to look at my kids this way. And there's no way we can be successful. And that year, I don't know what it was. I don't know if we had some really good coffee in that coffee pot, but that year I became a special education teacher and teacher and Keisha became a gen ed teacher and Wiggly became a master differentiator when it came to grammar. And all of us knew something about social studies. So we just like, we brought it all to the table and we shared it. We shared the, the, the beauty and Very the brilliance and the challenges. And that was, that was it. That was when I was like, yeah, that was also the year I won. Um, teacher of the year for the school the city the district and was a one of the top finalists for the state so if we if we thought it was right that affirmed that it was right because I yes my face was the one on the award but that was really the whole eighth grade team that came together asking how they were able to become leaders and to develop confidence in fulfilling these multifaceted responsibilities. Kelly Aldrich had the most teaching experience and had served as a team lead elsewhere. Keisha was quite early in her teaching career. Whitney's experience had been complicated enough to have her questioning whether teaching was for her. Lindsay had enough experience to know she was committed to building literacy for underserved groups of kids. Still, they didn't apply to be leaders, but were identified by Principal Christian Sawyer and encouraged to become leaders in practice as well as position. Starting with Whitney Bradley, they tell us how this happened. Um, Christian, Christian has a very keen eye when it comes to recognizing certain leadership characteristics in, in a person that perhaps they do not see. I came from a very tumultuous teaching experience. And I, like, I frankly wasn't sure that I was supposed to be a teacher because of how horrible my teaching experience was before I got to Bailey. So when he said, no, no, you'll be a leader. I was like, okay, I guess. And then it just sort of like morphed into, no, I can do this. No, I, I do know how to do this. Oh, I'm going to mess that up. But there's space to, to, to learn and to try things out. I think something that was pretty instrumental to my development was Emily Pendergrass, Dr. Emily Pendergrass from Vanderbilt came over. Y'all remember that? Like, and we did development sessions specifically around the characteristics of adult learners and how to be like a meaningful team. And I think even the year before that, a group of people went to Harvard to learn how to work on small teams. So it wasn't that, that we were like thrown into leadership and didn't have support. Um, Christian did a a knockout job of saying, no, you're going to be a leader, but I'm also going to work really hard to make sure you're developed as a leader. Um, and so I think that that was probably most help. If I wasn't ready, I got ready. What was so unique about the leadership experience is that we were, I mean, to your point, we were grown as leaders. I mean, I was young. I remember just, I was nursing a baby at the time. Like I had I, I, I knew I was good at my craft and I was growing at it, but I, I was not a leader yet. And he, Christian saw that in me, saw it in all of us on this call. And he said, I'm going to invite you into this. It's going to be hard. It's going to be the best work. And I, I need you. Like, I remember this is a moment I always go back to. I went to him almost in tears over what to do about this literacy plan that he wanted me to make. And I didn't know what to do. I said, well, you know, I laid out all the problems and I told him all the things and he, he stopped me. He said, Lindsay, I hired you to solve this problem. You can do it. And he kicked me out. <laughs> and at that point, I realized like, oh, I'm the solution. I don't have to go tap somebody else. I don't have to go buy a thing or a program. I, I'm, I, my knowledge and my resources and the people and the experience, I can solve this problem. And the, that, the biggest, the biggest asset to Bailey, and, you know, I've heard it said so many times was the knowledge in the room and the expertise in the room and the passion in the room. And he would always turn to us for the solutions. And I don't, I mean, that, that I still carry that with me, that one conversation where he kicked me out. I carry that with me now because I'll, I'll think, oh, wait, I'm the solution. I can do this. 
Yeah, um, I agree with Lindsay in terms of AA age. For me, I was very young, very um, not not um, emotionally mature in terms of how to facilitate the development of an adult in different ways that I do that with children. And at that time in my very passionate self, I'm learning how to regulate that kind of thing or not come off harsh or not come off dominating. I didn't, I didn't feel like I was a great leader because in my mind, I don't think that I was like, as kind or understanding, I think, of adults as I would have liked to been. It's funny because schools that got me in leadership roles after Bailey got that side of me, but without Bailey to develop me into that place, nobody would have probably ever seen it. So for me, being a leader was a very humbling experience. It taught me about myself. And like Lindsay said, again, it's the difference between being good at your craft and helping somebody else develop theirs. You're not a good leader just because you're good at something. If you can't, you know, help somebody else get to that um, learning and that development um, themselves, then, you know, um, yeah, things like that were difficult for me. Um, trust was difficult for me, especially, I'm going to be honest and no mean to offend, trust or non-BIPOC people with these kids specifically, especially gen ed teachers who have a a lot of assumptions about 25% of our population, probably more, and their abilities. I think that lack of trust and the assumed bias of some of the people that I'm working with absolutely impacted my beliefs of what they could do if I wanted to really interact with them and stuff like that. And that's just me being honest. Um, so after time and growth, you learn how to manage those. You learn how to have courageous conversations. You learn how to just make discussions like that more normal and not so sticky and hard. Um, and you definitely learn how to be honest with yourself. Are there any other specific stories or things that you would point to, to say, I was encouraged personally, professionally, I was developed personally, professionally. I would say there was this one time um, we had a meeting with the principal at Stratford. Um, and we were talking about the, this there was a STEM program where kids were going to be pulled to go over to Stratford and um, the the meeting got heated because there was some comparison with the students at Bailey to the students at Lytton and the STEM person that was coming in and um, the discussion got very heated with Dr. Sawyer and the principal of Stratford and um I was a part of this meeting and I remember afterwards uh, Dr. Sawyer pulled me into a meeting and he was like you were so quiet in that meeting and I was like mm -hmm. okay and he was like I didn't hire you to be quiet I hired you to hear your opinion I want you to speak up and I was like oh wow okay like I was like okay I I didn't know that but it won't happen again I think that was like the first time I realized, dang, like I'm a leader. Like this man hired me to be a leader and not just on paper, but he wants me to like show up and participate. And my opinion actually counts because after being a teacher, I think I came to Bailey. I had been teaching for like 12 years. Your opinion isn't really heard sometimes as a teacher. And so I think that was the first time it was like, no, your opinion matters, what you think matters in these kind of meetings. I want you to speak up and be heard um, because that's what I hired you to do. And I was like, okay, that's a great, yes, story. That's a great yeah. story. Okay. Who wants to go? This is, this is about how we, we recognize our voice mattered or like, like we had solidified ourselves as, as a, I, the, the first time Christian Sawyer confronted me with my leadership was um, we, I had a teacher named Charlesy Wigley and Charlesy every single day would like threaten to quit every day. It was like clockwork. Like Keisha and I would like look at each other and we would like have our cup of coffee in our hand and we would go, all right, sis, what are we, what are we doing today? How are we supporting Charlesy today? And so at some point I just was like, 
so annoyed because to Keisha's point, Keisha and I are only a year apart. So I had been teaching two and a half years by the time I came to Bailey. Um, I was 26, newly divorced, had a child that was this tall, right? It was a lot going on. Um, and so I was like sick of this adult and her problems. I was like, if I got to come to work every day with my life quite literally falling apart, you gonna have to figure it out. So I stormed in the Christian's office. He was reading or typing something. And he said, yes, Bradley, how can I help you? And I said, you need to fire her today. Like, I don't care what you got to do. I don't care. You need to fire her. And he looked at me and he said, that's interesting. Tell me more. So I went through all the reasons why. And I had like, my case was ironclad. And he looked at me and he said, "Mm, well, I look forward to hearing how you solve that problem. And if there's nothing else. And he just like dismissed me. And he did it in the most respectful way that I wanted to like toss all the stuff off his desk. But um, after that, I was like, okay, I got to figure it out. And I built an entire system around her so that we could figure it out. And it worked. But it, it was like, I didn't know that I could do that until he told me I didn't have a choice, mm-hmm. right? He, he had this way of just like, you don't have a choice but to fix this. You don't have a choice but to be brilliant. You don't have a a choice but to be innovative and entrepreneurial in your pursuit of educational justice. Like you don't have a choice because none of us have a choice. And so just get out my office and go figure it out. (laughs) And you do know that Charlesy knows that. Um, I mean, you heard it in this second episode and you know, she just said, had I not had the support of people who could see what was good about me, I would not have made it. And, you know, and now she's, well, and now she's, she's, but now, yeah. She's, yeah, right. Yeah. She's setting the world on fire. Charles right. E for president. Yes, yes. absolutely. Yes, <laughs> for sure. So I remember, I don't know if you guys remember this, Christian would always say, what do we need to do to make this person stay? He had this value of our students have experienced so much trauma already the last thing they need is one more person walking out on them. And there, there were a lot of people that a lot of us, you know, like Whitney would say, they got to go, this isn't working. And his point is, no, 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 you've got to make it work. Even if it's for the commitment of the school year, for the sake of kids, we have to figure out the adult stuff to make this work for them. And I've never, I've never heard that as a core value, any other place besides Bailey. And I mean, just knowing, yes, we had some people who needed to leave mid-year, but that that was rare and few considering what we were all going through and what our students went through. I mean, I, I think that's a huge win for kids just to know this person stuck with it for the year for me. Um, to follow up for me, a, a humbling experience um, that kind of, again, made me reassess um, the growth that I could do as a leader, my value, but also the growth. Madison No, who was a really, really good math teacher, and she really tried, and she really, especially with one of our students who was, who was academically, she was fine in math, um, but at that time, I was pulling out a group um, upstairs. My classroom was upstairs. Math was downstairs. Whitney's class was um, across the hall from her, and she said, she had told me, she said, Keisha, some, sometimes, um, some, sometimes I feel like the kids know they can pick and choose between us. And they know that if they go to you for something, you're going to override something that I have said or done in my class. And again, my lack of trust for some teachers with some students got in the way of me being able to coach her through how to handle or different language, you know, different supports in her space. So it did, I will admit, it did come across at that time as like, well, if I don't like it, I'm just going to tell her I'm going to go to Miss Harding's class or whatever. And she confronted me about this. And I really had to humble myself, but also realize that I had a lack of trust, again, for this person or people's with certain students. And I really had to say, and I went to Whitney, I said, do you know she said this to me? And Whitney said, but Keisha, she's right. I was like, ah, Now I'm going to have to go home and like figure out how, you know, what is my part in this and what does this mean for my leadership? And no one, including Madison, ever said I was a bad leader, but it was a point in my development 
of recognizing tone of voice, language you use to lead, how you're coaching people through both by modeling and by you know, peer suggestions or whatever the case may be, and a level of honesty. People, if you aren't, if their trust isn't there on your team and people can't be honest with you about how you're making them feel, it, I mean, it's gonna go left real fast. And that was just a moment of my development of again, being humbled, realizing that yes, you are a strong leader, but if you do X, Y, and Z, it's not gonna be received. And so just check yourself a little bit and thank you that you have an accountability system around you to kind of keep you on track, again, to fail without judgment. The longer you listen, the more you realize that Bailey was a crucible for teacher and leader development. And it's not just these four designated leaders who experienced that. At the end of the last episode, Charles E. Wigley stated clearly that leadership at Bailey wasn't positional, that it extended to everybody there. You may know that teacher leadership has been a pretty hot topic for a couple of decades. I talked recently with Tennessee teacher Earl Wyman, who was on the board of the National Education Association and who was hired to develop a race to the top funded teacher leadership program in MNPS just about the time the Bailey experiment was going on. Interestingly, Earl didn't see many parallels between his program and what Sawyer and friends were creating at Bailey. The program the district was creating was more about identifying those individuals with leadership potential. The Bailey effort seems utterly experiential in conception and practice and linked to the mission of the school community. Is that how the teacher leaders saw it? Naturally, I asked them. Um, for me, I mean, my first thought is just the shoulder to shoulder work. Like we were literally we knew kids by name, we knew where they were, we knew their triggers, we knew their trauma, we knew um, what made them happy and their joy. And, and alongside, maybe your teacher of record, maybe I'm not, maybe a teacher resident, you know, works with a small group three days a week and every single person, we, we all carried the load of our students. It wasn't just falling onto one person's shoulders. And um, I remember, I mean, back to what we're all saying, the team was the answer. It wasn't one person, go figure it out. And I'm going to sit back here and check on your data every month. I mean, it was, we are all literally doing the work together. Yeah. I think another difference is that um, teacher leadership traditionally, now that I've been, you know, a school principal and assistant principal is like a precursor to being an assistant principal. At least that's what the traditional trajectory is, right? You become a teacher, then you become a teacher leader because you have good classroom management or whatever. Then you might become an instructional coach or you might become an AP and you might become a principal. At Bailey, I never wanted to be anything other than a teacher leader because the way it was marketed to us was like, you are a master educator and your kids deserve to learn from you. We do not hold true that because you are a really good teacher, you all of a sudden need to be plucked out of the classroom and to Kelly's point, far removed from students. And Bailey is the only school where I have seen the value being placed on good teachers remaining in the classroom, no matter what. So, oh, you need a different schedule? Okay. You want a different version of leadership? Okay. You want, you maybe need a little bit more money? Okay. We'll do whatever it takes for you to stay in the classroom because the value is placed on your ability to teach, not on your ability to lead. So it was about yeah. the primary focus being on us serving our children and then us serving our colleagues. And that's, well, that's just different. You hit two things, Whitney. One is the um, the question of um, money, because, you know, once you've been a teacher for five or six or seven, or you pick it, um, you, you want two things, not just money, but your expertise acknowledged. And I think that's what you're getting at. And then, oh, by the way, if you're taking on additional responsibility, you ought to get more money. And if that means an 11 month contract or whatever it is, of course. Um, anybody else on that subject generally? 
how's it different? What, what felt different about uh, Kelly? You're the one who said you had been a team lead, but that this was different. Yeah, I think it was different. I think you, you hit it on the hair with the, if your expertise is finally being appreciated and, and you're compensated for that. Like, uh, I, I think that's one of the thing the biggest things. And also, like Lindsay said, you know, you're standing shoulder to shoulder. You're in the trenches with, with everybody. You know, it's not like you're outside looking in, but you're like feeling it and going through it right along with the teachers and the TAs and everybody, you yeah, know, you can't walk so away. that, right. So that was probably the biggest difference is that part. Yeah, um, I I always felt like, especially from Dr. Sawyer, several people definitely, but Dr. Sawyer specifically had a way of making you feel like you were the best teacher to walk through that building every single day. Like, how do you even know what I'm doing? But he like knew, <laughs> like he knew kind of what was going on. And remember, I came with Dr. Jasper. Dr. Jasper and I both worked at Johnson's Special Day School. And that was my first year teaching. My first year teaching at the age of like 22 was at an alternative school with boys like double my size. So apparently I was successful at that. And she was like, come over to Bailey. It's gonna be great, right? So I already had this kind of confidence, if you will, that there's a reason or a purpose for me being here. But to feel that I think all the way around definitely um, makes a difference. To be given an opportunity to fail without judgment was also very important. And I didn't realize that piece until later. Um, Cause at that time, um, I, 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 do, I did feel a lot of pressure to meet great expectations because there was such a solid group of people in the building. So I put that pressure on myself for sure. <laughs> but um, I didn't know till later I was able to fail at language, fail at coaching. And again, in a space that allowed me to learn from it and grow and not, oh, you're just going to lose your job next week, or I'm going to bump you back down, bump you back down to just a teacher rather than I never had those feelings. It's pretty clear that teacher leadership powered the operation of teams at Bailey. But both teachers and leaders are quick to give Principal Sawyer the lion's share of the credit for making this happen. From identifying and inviting teachers to be and become leaders, to offering them the space to make and take responsibility for decisions, to supporting their development personally and professionally. Interestingly, Folks give him credit both for what he did and what he didn't do. Exceptional educator Janita Sanders was effusive in her praise of Sawyer. That he was just a breath of fresh air. He was the type of principal I had dreamed about, that his uh, ability to approach him to uh, either bring concerns or request or you know, report positives. I mean, his, his door was always open, but he was all, and I've, I've always said, I mean, he's a fantastic leader. Um, I would work again for him in a heartbeat. Um, he, he just, he had the vision and he had the um, wherewithal to know how to put it in place, you know, and he was able to delegate and you know, really put together a great leadership team. Conley Flynn, a Vanderbilt resident, saw clearly both Sawyer's support and his willingness to let go of some control. Yeah, he was a very supporting presence. Um, so whenever he came to talk to us before we were applying for that program, it just felt like he was there to focus on the kids and to help the teachers focus on the kids also. And that was my impression of him. And that seemed like someone I was excited to work for. Um, allowing for that teacher leadership program that they had in place at Bailey, 
I think kept the, the decision-making power closer to the students. And so we had the ability to change the way we were doing things kind of on the fly to respond to the needs that our student had. Um, and that's unique from any school that I've heard of since then. Sarah Prowl, the seventh and eighth grade science coach, seemed clear on the method in Sawyer's madness and how his handling of the teacher leaders aided her development. I guess I, I came over not quite fully understanding the mission. I think um, I had an idea that it was a school focused on teacher leadership. And if you can support the teachers in the way that they need to be supported, they will flourish and therefore the students will flourish. And then I also had a weekly meeting with, well, sometimes it was every other week, but some a, a meeting with uh, Dr. Sawyer that we met as a leadership team. And that was to keep us filled up, keep our cups filled up as leaders. And we were able to, um, that's probably the area that I grew the most in my time at Bailey was as a leader, just being able to learn from other leaders. What are the ways that we can do better? What are the ways that we can connect better with these teachers and students? Um, and what does it look like to be a good leader? Alan Coverstone, the district official who hired Principal Sawyer, told me that Sawyer had his beliefs right, that he understood the value and the power of teacher leadership. And I think that's right. But I always wondered whether there was something more going on, a kind of radical humility that stemmed from confidence in his educator colleagues. Sawyer didn't have to do it all because he knew just as the Bailey team came to know, that somebody would have his back. Resident Laura Lofman hints at this. It's really hard, right? Because I don't think I'll ever have uh, a leader like Christian Sawyer at the helm again. I think he's a gem. and uh, But, you know, I can definitely say that having worked alongside him, I feel like I've learned a ton. And I think... Even two, that's that's something else. I don't know if I could, maybe my current principal, but I really felt like Christian wanted wanted us to be beside him, you know. And I think that's something important to to note because I think there are a lot of principals or administrative teams um, where there's a very strict hierarchy um, within, like the leadership team and I just always got the feeling that you know Christian knew or came to know his strengths and where he wasn't strong he found people that he could lean on to fill those areas um and I just like I always felt like he believed in me you know like some random teacher resident from Vanderbilt um but I just always felt like he was invested in me and it made me want to give back and do that much more for him, for the scholars, for the community that Bailey served. Greta Knutson, fifth and sixth grade science lead, names it explicitly. Like Sawyer, one of the things I really appreciate about Sawyer is he knows his strengths and his weaknesses and he uses them though, but he also utilizes other people. So he, he you know, if he wasn't that great at discipline, he made a chief of culture, but he also wanted to build us as leaders. And I've never been built so much as a leader from the district on the district level, but there was even more the school level because the district really didn't do it. Next episode, we'll focus on Bailey's chief of culture, Dr. Claire Jasper, and the team she built around her to recreate a school culture that enabled teachers to focus on teaching that made academic success possible. But I don't want to end this episode without naming something that is becoming more and more evident with each episode. There was love at Bailey. It's evident in the way the teacher leaders talk with each other. It's evident in the way the teachers refer to their principal and describe how he regarded them. And the impact of that love 
is evident in this message that student Yasmin Summers recently left on social media for Dr. Sawyer. Hey, Dr. Sawyer, this Yasmin. I remember you from Bailey. I just wanted to say I was thinking about you today, and I wanted to say I miss you so much, and I miss the school. I wanted to say you made me into the a wonderful patient that I am today. And I just wanted to say thank you for like helping me out through my life and helping everybody else out. Whether or not they said it to you, I believe that you helped all of us grow up and to be wonderful people. Love you, Dr. Sawyer. Do great things with your life because you helped me with mine. Thank you. Next time, we'll think about how culture becomes love and love becomes learning. I hope you'll join us.